electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Ford. Today, stocks are headed higher, uh, despite Fed minutes suggesting more rate hikes are ahead, with growth names on the comeback. Is a recession in the cards? And what about the consumer? Evercore's got some worries, and we're going to talk to the analyst cutting estimates across big tech today and why he says a slowdown could be ahead. Plus, a lot more on the street's biggest calls this morning from IBM to SoFi to ad tech. We'll discuss it all, John, and there were a bunch of firms cutting numbers, at least for Q2 today. Yeah, we're going to talk about it all, but we're going to start with the market's rotation back into growth a bit, re-embrace a risk a little for now. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli joins us with that. Hey, Mike. Yeah, John, a loose embrace for the moment, uh, but definitely a piece of the story of this uh, this pickup we've had in risk appetites over the last several weeks. The overall market up six or seven percent. You see a few of these uh, kind of tech names, leaders that had a real following uh, on the street, these kind of innovators. This is just on a five day basis. You see 13 to uh, 18 percent gains in Roblox, Etsy, Rivian. Obviously, seems like a big deal. It seems like a lot of money coming in to try and, and pick these up at lows. But take a look at how they appear over a one-year span. And there's so many charts that look like this. A real aggressive uh, peak in the latter part of uh, 2021. And really, this sort of long and relentless grinding decline. So over there at the end are those 13 to 18 percent gains. Now, there's ways to sort of draw some of these charts and say, OK, maybe they're breaking the downtrends. Maybe it's a base forming. Uh, there's a lot of maybe is my point. Uh, so, yes, they're discarded. Yes, their valuations have been reset in a radical way. The question is, is that going to be enough? Uh, very difficult to say if it's just over or just pausing. Uh, but worth noting that that's one characteristic of this current revival is the growth trade uh, seems to be back on, at least for the moment. For the moment. And does that mean that the action in those stocks is disconnected from the, the latest chatter about or from the Fed? You know, I think, John, one piece of it is they're just not really that tied to the overall macro. They're not necessarily cyclically, cyclically geared to this whole binary debate. Is it a recession? Is it not a recession? You know, obviously, the, the whole pie of consumer spending matters for something like Etsy. But that's not the key factor here. It's much more about has, you know, have these franchises survived? Are the long term growth stories intact or not? So I do think it's a little bit of a, of a side story away from the big uh, kind of recession fed macro uh, debate that's going on. Billy, thank you. We're going to stick with the risk of recession and rate shock on tech. Some new data from PitchBook shows funding for tech startups plunging for the first time in three years, down 23 percent over the last three months. Joining us now with his outlook, Kraft Ventures co-founder and partner David Sachs. David, way into the conversation we were just having. Um, nothing has really changed in terms of the macro and expectation for rate hikes, yet we have seen this rebound in tech. The Nasdaq is up nearly 4 percent over just the past few sessions. What do you think is behind that? 
Well, the, the market is sort of oscillating here based on it's looking ahead and seeing a possibility of recession. I'd say more than a possibility. I'd say at this point, maybe a likelihood. And so what the market is doing is it's basically thinking ahead and saying, well, if there's a recession, won't that bring down demand? And that may temper this inflation. And so therefore, we may not need as big rate hikes in the future. And that's good for growth stocks. That's sort of the convoluted logic that I think the market is looking at right now. But I think the problem with that is, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't place too much um, emphasis on any one day's movements because this story is going to play out over the next six months as we see what's actually happening in the real economy and what's happening with the inflation data. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, recessionary risks are certainly going to have an impact on demand, both on the consumer and enterprise side, as we've been talking about. I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, stock-based compensation. We've been having a lot of conversations on our own show about this recently at a time when investors are looking for better profitability, more free cash flow. Where do you stand on this? Do you think that SBC should be considered a cash expense? You know, it's not my area, but I would say it probably, I mean, I think probably it should be treated as a as an expense. Um, but, but you know, I'm not I'm, a, but I'm David not a compensation Huffman's expert. But David not your area. You, you invest in a lot of SaaS and enterprise tech companies that use this. Yeah. Well, it's it's true. It's just that we, you know, we invest at such an early stage that, you know, we're issuing options and those options actually they're, you know, they add up to something that's dilutive for the company, but as a, you know, in terms of the dollar value of those options, they're actually pretty cheap at the time we issue them. But, you know, we're series A investors. By the time that these companies go public, the stock compensation actually ends up being a huge dollar amount. And so therefore, the way that, you know, you treat them from a gap standpoint matters a lot to, you know, to the company's financials. Um, you know, th- those types of sort of gap accounting issues are n- not something that early stage investors have to be extremely fluid in the way that, you know, public market uh, investors need to. So that's why I say, you know, it's something I'm familiar with, but it's not something I have a strong point of view on. Hey, David, good morning. You, j- you joined us a couple mm-hmm. of months ago and called this the worst market that you've seen in a long time, maybe ever worse in, in some ways than the dot-com bust for tech stocks. Uh, How much are we going to learn over the next six months that's going to affect tech stocks? And I mean both in the guidance from companies that we're about to hear in the next few weeks and then in how much they're stocking uh, in inventory ahead of the holiday season based on what they think the health of the consumer is going to be. I think we're going to learn a lot. Um, and, you know, the, the two main variables right now are what does this economic slowdown look like? And is it just a B2C slowdown? Is it just the consumer and consumer confidence that's been hit? Or does that eventually trickle up to, you know, B2B companies, software companies, the, the kinds of companies I invest in? I think the answer is yes. And the magnitude is to be determined over the next six months. And then the other issue is, of course, inflation. And, um, you know, I think the Fed is hoping that they've sort of nailed the soft landing here. Probably they were encouraged to see the 10-year Treasury rate go down substantially uh, last week, over the past week. But I think, you know, it, it, we're going to learn over the next six months whether inflation uh, is actually tempered by this reduction in demand or whether it continues unabated. Because, And, and I think there's reasons to think that inflation will continue because it's not just demand, a problem of excess demand. It's really a supply problem as well. So I think we're going to see, you know, could we end up with a stagflationary scenario where you have a downturn or recession at the same time that you have pretty high inflation? And if we have that kind of scenario, I think it will be actually pretty bad for growth stocks. Hmm. You mentioned B2B, and that's an area that has held up B2B software 
has held up particularly mm-hmm. well. There's a couple of bullish notes on IBM out, which is sort of that more uh, traditional legacy B2B software in a lot of places. Um, how are we going to see this macro impact on B2B, and what do you think is the base expectation? I remember IBM's CEO telling me that he expects uh, B2B software growth, I think, to be about 4% above GDP consistently. Uh, is the market expecting better than that, or is that about priced in? Well, the, 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 currently the SaaS index, the average SaaS company, is growing revenue about 20% year over year. So that's sort of the baseline, and we'll see if that goes down. Um, the way it would happen is SaaS companies are somewhat insulated, but not completely. So, for example, you saw a few weeks ago, Dara at Uber wrote that now sort of famous memo where he came back from meetings on Wall Street, and he had religion around cost-cutting. And he said, listen, we have to get cash flow positive, and we need to sharpen our pencils and scrutinize everything. That includes software. So companies like Uber, which are exposed to the consumer, which is now, the consumer is now at sort of unprecedented drop in consumer confidence, and that, and the consumer will basically reflect the economic slowdown first. So the companies who are levered to the consumer are going to be sharpening their pencils, and one of the things they will look to cut will be optional software purchases, software that is more vitamins than painkillers. So software, we're going to get a basically a, um, a sorting of software companies, I think, over the next six months to see whose products are actually mission critical and whose are sort of optional, because I do think that companies will start to sharpen their pencils and look to cut costs. That's interesting. That's exactly what B of A uh, argues today. They cut targets on a bunch of names, actually across the board on server and enterprise software. But they say a meaningful slowdown, David, unlikely to occur until Q1. Would you give it that much time? Well, I'm in a part of the economy which is reacting right away. I mean, in my pocket of the economy, which is sort of Silicon Valley, early stage growth companies, there's already been a huge adjustment. And these startups have really slammed on the brakes. And every board meeting, the conversation is the same, which is how much do we cut? Uh, Do we freeze our hiring plans? How much burn should we reduce? And so there's already, I think, fast action in the part of the ecosystem that I'm in, which is why I've been saying on your show now for several months that... Uh, that we're headed for a big slowdown. I think startups are sort of the canary in the coal mine. But, uh, you know, the the larger, more insulated uh, companies, like you mentioned, the IBMs and so forth, it may take them six months to get the memo. But I think this slowdown has already started. And your point about supply and the Fed is interesting. I mean, we can all imagine how that might take place. But the Fed's already said, look, we we can help uh, slow down demand. When it comes to supply, you kind of got to get lucky. What would their playbook be if, if, that, if the scenario you put forward, a stagflationary scenario, came about? Well, so what the Fed can do by increasing interest rates is reducing demand, obviously. But I don't think this price problem, this inflation problem, is purely caused by excess demand. Certainly, there was an overstimulation of the economy. The administration sent out all those stimmy checks, and that is a problem. And reducing some of that demand will impact and reduce inflation. However, we also have this problem of almost record low participation in the labor force. So that is a big problem that has not gone away. That has created a lot of wage pressure in certain parts of the economy. We also have this problem of commodity prices, which is being exacerbated by the war in Ukraine. So unless you get some fundamental resolution on energy prices, on food prices, which again is not entirely caused by Ukraine, but it's exacerbated by that. I don't know how just merely reducing demand is going to completely solve that problem. So I think you could see a situation in which we get a recession, but you still have inflation. 
And that would be the 1970s stagflationary situation. Yeah. That'd be a worst case scenario. Um, David, before we let you go, I just want to go back to that idea of sharpening pencils at this moment or cutting costs. I mean, if you do this at the earlier stage, whether it's the sort of best of breed public companies like your Octas and Zooms and DocuSigns or in the private market, isn't this what the platforms, the suites are waiting for, the Microsofts and the CRMs for these companies to stop focusing on growth at all costs, scale back? Doesn't that give them an opening to sell their products to these enterprises that are maybe looking to cut costs themselves? Perhaps. I mean, I think that the Microsoft bundle is a powerful weapon. Um, in fact, I think it's so powerful that antitrust regulators should be looking at it, the so-called E5 bundle. What they basically do is every year they throw in a new SaaS product, like you know they'll throw in their Zoom clone or they'll throw in their Slack clone. And yeah. you know because it's part of a bundle, the enterprises are essentially getting that marginal product for free, but then Microsoft increases the price of the bundle the next year. I think it's anti-competitive. I think you know this would be a legitimate area for antitrust authorities to look at. Um, so I don't know if that completely answers your question, but but yeah, there could be some uh, issues like that. that. That's interesting. It's a tough a tough backdrop to fight against if you are one of the smaller guys. Uh, David, always great to get your insights. Thank you, David Sachs, Craft Ventures. You. In more venture capital news, another executive shuffle over at SoftBank. Rajiv Misra, CEO and key architect of the company's initial vision fund, he is stepping back from his main roles at the company to launch his own multi-billion dollar fund. And this comes after a string of other high-profile departures at SoftBank Group, including Marcelo Clare, Katsunori Sago. These are executives that were also seen as potential successors to CEO Masasan. Now, Misra will actually continue to run the first vision fund's investments, while Masasan himself, I'm told will take on a more direct leadership role in Vision Fund 2. The funds, like many in tech, the Vision Funds, that is, are getting hit very hard by valuation compression in the space. Remember that SoftBank, guys, they led Klarna's fundraise a year ago that valued it at more than $45 billion. That fintech now reportedly looking to raise at a $6 billion valuation. Another big haircut, similar actually to what we saw at WeWork. Remember, the Vision Fund invests in late-stage companies. That is a very, very tough place to be right now, John. Yeah, maybe six and a half for Klarna. Um, don't, don't begrudge them that six and a half billion. <laughs> All right, who owns your data when it comes to privacy laws? The answer might not be what you expect. We will discuss next. Tech Check, just getting started. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. 
<laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Got check on IBM today. Two analysts bullish on the company ahead of earnings next week. Morgan Stanley reiterating the, reiterating the overweight 157 target, pointing out it's the best performing stock in their coverage, outperforming the S&P by 23 points this year. And then Goldman adding the company to a list of tactical trades, predicting upside from an elevated demand environment. Although analysts are keeping an eye on margins amid the inflationary pressures, they do expect the stock to continue to outperform shares, obviously higher today. Uh, John, it was Katie Huberty, maybe six months ago, said good place to hide. Yeah. Hey, dividend yield, popular again all of a sudden. Uh, and meanwhile, do you ever wonder where your data is being held? Well, probably not. But our next guest takes a closer look at TikTok in his latest column, speaking to the company's head of global cyber and data defense, who assured him that, quote, no one is going to the lengths that we are to understand where data is and who has access to it. Social media giant did promise back in June 100% of U.S. data is stored in Oracle's cloud, though it's also backed up elsewhere. And uh, only after BuzzFeed News reported that Americans' user data had been repeatedly accessed from China. Lawmakers are pushing the FTC to investigate the issues, but without clear laws in the books, what should the next steps look like? Joining us now, platformer editor and CNBC contributor Casey Newton. Casey, welcome. Uh, we're talking about TikTok, but we could be talking about anything. I mean, how do we know who's accessing data from various companies and putting together um, massive dossiers on U.S. citizens. That's exactly right, John. You know, you think about all the sensitive data that these tech companies know about us, and there are almost no national laws regulating how they use that data, right? There are these giant data brokers companies that can just buy up essentially whatever they want to know about us and use it however they like. So I think there's a lot of appropriate attention right now on TikTok and, you know, what the Chinese government may or may not have access to. But until we have some sort of national privacy law, every tech company is going to find itself in this situation at some point. Well, not only a national privacy law, but doesn't there have to be a way of auditing this uh, in some way? I mean, it's one thing to say you can't share data on U.S. citizens outside of U.S. soil, but how do you check and make sure? That's right. It's really complicated. You know, if an American citizen is having a conversation with a Chinese citizen on TikTok, who owns that data? Is that American data? Is that Chinese data? And so there are going to have to be some sort of audit trails, essentially, so that the government can check these tech companies' work and not just have to take their word for it. Casey, um, as you've been talking about, it is so hard to understand who is accessing data. And that is why Huawei, another Chinese company, cannot sell 5G equipment to the major carriers or even in some countries as a whole. Um, should the same rules have been applied to TikTok much earlier, say not letting it be allowed to be listed in the Apple or Google app stores? Is it too late now to put that genie back in the bottle? Well, you know, President Biden said earlier this year that he was going to conduct a review of uh, a larger number of Chinese companies, TikTok included, and try to set some sort of ground rules. You know, I think this is a complicated one and reasonable people will disagree. But look, what the critics say at the end of the day is right. It's going to be extremely hard, probably impossible for ByteDance, TikTok's owner, to, re to reject a request from the Chinese government if and when the time came. Now, they will tell you up and down that they absolutely never would. Practically, though, it's really difficult to understand how they would resist. And for that reason, I think a lot of people have some legitimate concerns here. 
Yeah, even if you take them off the app stores now, their popularity is so widespread that people are going to use VPNs to get around it, just like the Chinese do to access some American apps. Um, but, Casey, do you think at least that the groundwork is being laid now so that maybe the next popular Chinese app will have more trouble gaining traction? I mean, TikTok has really been the first and only one to become so popular. Do you think it could happen again, or will sort of measures being put in place now prevent that? You know, it's a great question for the moment. It does seem like it's a one-off. And after TikTok really took off, China undertook a massive crackdown on its tech sector, as you know, which I think is probably making it a lot less attractive of a place to build a new app like TikTok. All that said, though, the regulations in the United States really haven't changed at all. So if there were some entrepreneur in China who wanted to create a new social app and launch it here, they wouldn't really face much pushback, at least at the jump. Now, all this being said, Casey, this week, there was this massive trove of data on Chinese users that was exposed. And uh, I, I'm not sure that I mean, it wasn't like it was a U.S. company that had sucked up this data or anything. Um, are we paying too much attention to the obvious thing? Obvious big Chinese company that uh, potentially has data on U.S. citizens. We wouldn't want the Chinese to get their hands on that. But there are plenty of other data troves that are not being protected well enough that if you're China, sure, maybe focus on TikTok over here. Meanwhile, we can get what we want elsewhere because the data policies in the U.S. are not tight enough. That, that's exactly right. And it's clear that there are you know, multiple ongoing operations coming from China to the United States. You know, the, the FBI issued a warning uh, last night about the, the use of this new Maui ransomware that's out there. So, you know, clearly the, the, the cyberspace is extremely hot right now for these kind of, uh, you know, um, uh, influence operations and, and other um, uh, attacks. And so, you know, let, let's hope our lawmakers and regulators are, are paying close attention here. Casey Newton, thank you. Still to come this morning, is Amazon the most risky fang name to hold this quarter? Our next guest seems to think so. Find out why after the break. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big. Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back. I'm Christina Parts Nevelis with your CNBC News Update. 
First-time claims for jobless benefits rose by 4,000 last week to a total of 235,000. That's a possible sign of a cooling labor market, along with the monthly Challenger report showing layoffs at a 16-month high. We'll get a fresh look at the state of the labor market tomorrow morning when the government releases the June employment report. The U.S. trade deficit narrowed in May to $85.5 billion. The trade gap was kept in check by record exports from the U.S. to other countries, while imports rose by a much smaller amount. Import growth has been cooling off amid slowing domestic demand as the Fed raises interest rates to combat inflation. And American Airlines will pay some pilots triple their normal pay to work flights that were left short-staffed by a computer glitch. The glitch allowed pilots to opt out of future trips, resulting in more than 12,000 scheduled flights without a captain or first officer or both. There you have it. Back over to you guys. All right, Christina, thank you. Uh, one of many risk stocks popping this morning with the NASDAQ up 1.5%. GameStop, the company announcing a four-for-one stock split that'll go into effect July 22nd. Shares have been outperforming the S&P and NASDAQ since January, but still more than 50% off their highs this morning, up almost 9%. We're back in two. Chip names are rallying today. The SOXX ETF up more than 3.5%. And check out Samsung. It's a bellwether for consumer electronics demand, giving fodder to bulls in the space this morning. But is there more pain ahead? Christina Partsnevelis joins us with a breakdown. Christina. Well, Samsung posted its best second quarter since 2018, providing some relief for other chip makers right now, like United Microelectronics up about 6%. We're seeing uh, Taiwan Semiconductor up 65 And so investors are seeing this as good news for the sector. But, like you mentioned, are they getting ahead of themselves? Samsung posted a narrow sales beat, and operating profit came in lower than expected. 60% of Samsung's operating profit comes from memory or DRAM chips, and a deceleration is occurring, and that could signal worse times ahead. DRAM prices, for example, fell 12% last month from a year ago. And DRAM customers are actually sitting on two months' supply on average. So if they have the supply, why buy more? And that's why other firms are warning about the second half of this year. Micron, for example, forecasts a softer next quarter over concerns of weakening demand. AMD flagged a slowdown in PC sales. And Intel CFO said the second half of this year had gotten, quote, a lot noisier over the previous month and that the company would also look to align spending. So today's Samsung sales outlook was better than feared, but that could be seen as backward looking rather than a forward indicator around the health of semiconductors. Carl? All right, Christina, thank you very much. Uh, sticking with tech, we're getting closer to the next round of tech earnings. Inflationary pressure, softening consumer demand, potential recession, just some of the risks in focus. Our next guest remaining cautious on the sector, cuts estimates across the board in names like Meta, Netflix, and Alphabet. Joining us this morning, Evercore analyst Mark Mahaney. Mark, it's great to have you. You point out uh, you guys came into the year pretty cautious, but you basically now are dividing the sector into three baskets depending on whether they're the most or least resistant to recession. So, uh, yes, thanks for the setup, Carl. You're, you're right about that. Uh, there's risk estimates across the board. There's some industry, um, a vertical-specific data. We had the snap negative pre-release. We did our own on Amazon customers that suggested some caution over the next uh, 12 months. They're not, uh, that said, they're not a huge ton of uh, inter 
that industry data points that suggest you need to cut, but you do. It's because of the macro uh, pressures that we're all looking at and uh, the, what's happening to the dollar as well. Many of these names have dramatic uh, international exposures, so that's going to cut uh, outlooks. So we cut uh, estimates by 5 to 10 percent across the board. Some names that should hold up the larger advertising platforms that are more performance marketing geared. Obviously, Google cuts the lead, gets cut the least, only about 5 percent. Ad platforms that are most uh, levered geared towards uh, brand advertising, call that a Pinterest. I would be cut more like 10%. You can do this names, discretionary retail names. Uh, eBay, Etsy should be cut. Uh, that we've done. There's a few of these models, like a Spotify, should be the case across the board. We've had a dramatic derating in the sector since the beginning of the year. Now it's time for the estimates to come down. When that happens and we start getting beyond kind of peak interest rate fears, then you can have a real nice rally in the sector. I don't know if that's three, six, or nine months out, but we want to be prepared for that. For that. Uh, Mark, give us a moment to, uh, to adjust some of your audio, see if we can optimize that, John. In the meantime, uh, that last basket that Mark was referencing, names like Uber, Spot, Airbnb, Dash, and Roku, which is one of uh, his more tactical moves where they go to underperform. Uh, but those are the names, uh, John, where Mark says you need to see what I guess Chair Powell would call clear and convincing evidence that inflation is moderated. Yeah, I, I know that we are working on his audio, something I'm looking forward to discussing with him when we can. How much has the narrative shifted around the potential of these companies right? And uh, where they're not going to be what we initially thought they were going to be because the technology doesn't work, et cetera. And how much of it is just about the wait is going to be longer because of the macro conditions. Uh, and with that, we will uh, go ahead and take a break with the major indices rallying so far this morning. The Dow is up more than 200 points. The S&P 1% higher. The Nasdaq up one and a half. Tech Check will be right back. Let's bring back in Evercore's Mark Mahaney, who, as we said, cut estimates across the board in the Internet sector. Joining us on the phone now, Mark, I, I am curious about how you're viewing travel right now in the consumer, because you do include Airbnb in that high beta, aggressive beta basket with some risk to recession. Uh, but you did make a tactical call on booking in the other direction. H how do you square those? These are really nuanced calls. Uh, there's no doubt that uh, leisure travel is having a huge banner summer. Uh, there were very few, very few companies in consumer tech that had upwards estimates revisions off the March quarter. Booking and Airbnb were two of them, two of very few. The stocks gapped up and then faded. I wouldn't be surprised to see the exact same replay this quarter. I, I think both of these companies, especially booking, are going to have upside the street estimates and then they may well fade off that because uh, when it comes into next year, th these, are, these aren't 22 recession stocks. They're 23 recession stocks. Travel, leisure travel is a, is a discretionary category. So we would expect that to get cut as we go into next year. That's what we tried to do with our earnings estimates here. The question is whether that's going to broadly happen across the street and make the stock safer. But in the meantime, you've got a very good bulletproof balance sheet, a, a battle-tested management team, highly profitable business, trading at 11 times EBITDA or cash flow. And I think a name like Booking can hold up well, even in a tough macro environment like this. Mark, more broadly, the tech trade has reversed so quickly this year. What is the risk that investors are actually underweight heading into the earnings season? Is that potentially why we are seeing a rebound in growth in tech over the last few days? 
th- that could be. So what we started off this year overrated or overowned that that was tech. Uh, we try to be. I personally try to be cautious. Obviously not cautious enough. Uh, you know, entering the year, but we try to be cautious, knowing that we had uh, rising inflation rate uh, uh, risk rates risk FX risk, and then what's come clear in the last month or two or three months is recession risk. That's a huge cauldron of negatives to throw at uh, consumer tech and consumer tech is folded at some point that will reverse i'm not sure that you're going to get that off of the june quarter results i think you could get that off of the september quarter results and at the latest i think off of the december quarter results and i'm also assuming that by that time we'll start seeing moderation in inflation and we'll be beyond kind of peak interest rate fears uh, for the sector because it does impact long duration assets like what you see in a lot of tech that's kind of the setup here. I'm still cautious going into this uh, this print, and I'm just hoping that we can get to the other side. I think estimates requ- uh, cuts are required really across consumer tech. Let's get it over with sooner rather than later. Mark, I want to check in on the thesis on uh, Internet consumer tech in general. Two years ago, there was all this talk about uh, multiple years' worth of growth squeezed into one year. Omnichannel, the Internet was the, the future of buying, et cetera. Uh, to what extent has anything happened that has changed that, that fundamental premise and the, techno- the value of the technology that these companies have? And to what degree has the macro environment just adjusted the valuations and said you're going to have to wait longer for that to pay- play out than you might have expected? I like the way you set that up, uh, John. So I'm going to give you three examples here. Uh, first is um, DoorDash, you know, online delivery, which was so early on in the S-curve of adoption that when uh, you had uh, uh, COVID come along, it, it just sort of accelerated it into the mainstream. So you can still have, you know, material growth, you know, p- um, you know during COVID and post-COVID. Then you get into a name like Amazon, which is already, you know, 15, 20% of retail sales were online. Demand was pulled forward, and we had this kind of spike up in 2020 that moderated in 2021. But the path there of online retail sales migration, I think that's still well intact. I think that's underappreciated about Amazon, so that's fine. I think you'll still see premium growth for that as we work through the recession uh, for Amazon. And then the last stock to think about is Netflix, which was just pulled forward to maturity. It already had 60% of households. And so it depends where you were in kind of that S-curve of adoption. That determines what happened to your growth rate during COVID, but more importantly, what happened to your growth rate post-COVID. <laughs> you, just, uh, you just summed up a lot of what we've been through the last couple of years, and we'll learn a lot more in the coming weeks, Mark. Appreciate it very much. Uh, appreciate you expanding Thanks, on Carl. the note today. That's Mark Mahaney. All right, now let's get a gut check on fun. City slashing estimates across their coverage of entertainment, bracing for a recession that could drive declines in consumption trends. Streamers like Netflix, Paramount, Roku, Warner Brothers Discovery, seeing price targets cut across the board and adjusting earnings estimates as the firm gets more bearish on ad-exposed names, saying they're more exposed to consumer pullbacks. Guys, um, it's, uh, it's an interesting landscape there. Yep, the theme will continue to fall, and that is City's take on the ad slowdown. What about Sun Valley? A lot of talk over there about some key headwinds ahead for media this year. Julia Borston is live from Sun Valley with more. Julia. Deirdre, we are hearing a lot here in Sun Valley about an advertising slowdown. The CEO of Horizon Media telling us that his big brand clients see flashing yellow warning lights. And as they pull back, he expects the likes of Meta to lose ground to newer ad players, such as the retailers. There's new competitors in the marketplace. And not just about, you know, it used to be Fang, that group. 
now when you think about the retail networks, the Walmarts, the Amazons, the Targets, those groups of, of, of huge retail networks, point of purchase for marketers, are taking more and more market share from the other players because the pie is not growing. Echoing that, IAC's CEO, Joey Levin, told us he also sees advertisers pulling back, but that this down tech market provides a fantastic opportunity for IAC to pick up some public company assets. This is the first time in a very long time, years, like five years at least, where there's real opportunities in the public markets. And we just have, we have not seen that. The, the math didn't work for us for a while to buy a growing business with big upside because all the upside was already priced in and none of the execution was there yet. There's one potential set of assets in the spotlight here, and that is NFL rights. Commissioner Roger Goodell arrived here in Sun Valley yesterday, and sources say that Apple, Disney, and Amazon have all submitted bids for NFL Sunday ticket rights, and Apple is seen as the front runner, especially on the heels of its baseball and major league soccer deals. CEO Tim Cook and Eddie Q, Apple's senior VP of services, are here as well. Now I'm getting hearing a lot of talk here in Sun Valley about how sports is the most reliable, valuable content, and so the tech giants are going to be willing to pay up for it. Guys? Julia, I also wonder about whether the um, advertising landscape has shifted away from Meta in favor of some of these content players who are there. I was talking to a media CEO yesterday who was saying there's a sense that the, the long tail isn't as popular as it was because targeting uh, is not as easy and maybe there's a bit of a flight to quality happening. Are you hearing anything about that? Well, yeah, I mean, I've been asking a lot of questions about what's going on with Meta. You know, Mark Zuckerberg's here. Uh, we haven't seen him yet, but he is on the list. Sheryl Sandberg, we've seen walking around with Marnie Levine, who's a senior executive um, at, at Meta and Facebook. Um, and I think there's this question of whether or not Meta is going to be able to really navigate over the long term those targeting headwinds as a result of Google's operating, I'm sorry, excuse me, Facebook, Apple's operating system change, and then also some ad targeting changes in the works from Google as well. Um, but I think when it comes to the streaming landscape, we're hearing so much here about the rise of ad-supported streaming. And it seems like that type of advertising, you know, on premium content, part, you know, paired with some of the ability to really reach um, targeted consumers and measure the mm -hmm. impact of ads, that's going to pr prove a great opportunity to the media companies as they compete for some of those ad dollars. But I think it was great to point out what Bill Koningsberg did about the retailers, the likes of Amazon, which is a growing player in the ad space, the kind of opportunity that the likes of an Amazon, Walmart, Target have right now to really still share. Yep, absolutely. Julia Borston, thank you. We're going to get a check on two software names also this morning. Canaccord initiating Splunk and PagerDuty with buy ratings. Splunk at a $130 price target. PagerDuty at $32, well above current prices. The bull cases here, they see increasing value in Splunk's platform dominating the data space. And for PagerDuty, encouraging signs as they expand margins, projecting that they will exceed expectations with 25% growth this year. Those shares, PagerDuty up nearly 6%. We will be right back. In the latest edition of Overvalued or Undervalued, we take a look at SoFi. Mizuho asking the question, should we value the company as a bank 
or a fintech company. On the overvalued side, they lower their price target on SoFi from $9 to 7 That's mainly to reflect more reasonable near-term upside from current levels. Stocks fall in about 60% for the year. In fact, they think it may be undervalued with plenty of upside versus fintech peers, specifically touting its discounted enterprise value to EBITDA multiple. It's trading up this morning along with buy now, pay later names like Affirm, up about 7%. Uh, interesting, especially coming on the heels of uh, SoFi's interview with Julie out in Sun Valley, D. Yeah, it is such an interesting debate whenever we look at sort of new generation tech companies versus the legacy players. SoFi is one of those I can't help John, but compare their user base to the likes of those using Cash App, which is Square or Blocks offering, as well as Venmo. I mean, simply take a Venmo. They're branching into so many different things, but PayPal has not figured a way how to monetize it, and that is so key here. Even if you have millions more users than, say, a SoFi, if you can't monetize them, what are they doing? And there's that question for SoFi as well. Are they able to properly cross-sell products, which is basically what every fintech wants to do right now. They want to be that one-stop shop. Not all of them can. Maybe SoFi represents the best attempt at that. It also has that banking license. Yeah, uh, I appreciate the balance in this Mizuho note. It's like a little on the other hand, which, of course... Mm -hmm. I love, but uh, especially in this market, valuing something versus peers, I don't know. That always makes me queaser. If you're thinking about what the value really is, how good is the technology? How good is the Mm -hmm. interface versus the overall market? Um, That, to me, makes a lot more sense because, as you can see, all the peers in everything have have tumbled. And so, you know, value value versus peers is a moving target. I would argue as well, maybe the user interface, right? That is key for customers using and switching to an online bank, whether that's through Chase or Marcus or SoFi. Meanwhile, guys, as crypto lenders continue to collapse along with prices, one key figure we've talked about has emerged to help stabilize the ecosystem. That is Sam Bankman-Fried, founder and CEO of crypto exchange FTX. Kate Rooney joins us with more on his role. Kate, you were off yesterday. We talked about his role in Voyager. It is kind of difficult to piece apart his personal fund, Alameda, extended a loan, and through those bankruptcy proceedings, it's not really getting much special treatment in that liquidation process. Right. We got a lot of information in that bankruptcy filing on Tuesday night. And crypto billionaire Sam Bankman-Fried, like we've talked about, is really becoming this industry's lifeline. But one of his companies will likely take a major loss after this week's latest Crypto bankruptcy. Voyager filed for Chapter 11 on Tuesday night. Alameda, that's Sam Bankman-Fried's quant trading firm, is mentioned 34 times in that filing, guys. Alameda was one of Voyager's largest shareholders with about a 9.5% equity stake in that company. Alameda was also a creditor, though. Bankman-Fried's company provided a loan made up of crypto and cash. It was worth about $500 million. Voyager only drew on about $75 million. Worth of that total legal analysts, though, are telling me it's unlikely Alameda will recoup that equity and credit line. That money may be wiped out in Voyager's restructuring. On top of all of that, Alameda was also a customer. It borrowed $376.8 million worth of cryptocurrencies from Voyager. That interest rate was between 1% and 11.5%. We also see some other outstanding loans in these bankruptcy documents. Another high-profile borrower we've talked about Three Arrows Capital, which was a big part of Voyager's downfall in the first place. Three Arrows owes more than $650 million to Voyager. It defaulted on that back in late June. And Genesis, as well as Mike Novogratz's Galaxy Digital, are also on that list of Voyager borrowers. Bankman-Fried, though, through his companies, FTX and Alameda, has already plowed hundreds of millions of dollars 
in emergency loans into various crypto companies. Now has the option to buy one of those companies, BlockFi, as we've talked about. And in an interview with Reuters, Bankman-Fried says he and his companies still have, quote, a few billion on hand to help struggling crypto firms and that the worst of this liquidity crunch has likely passed. But his role here highlights all of the links between these crypto firms, guys, some of the contagion we've seen within lending. It also shows what some are calling recycled capital within the space. Back to you. Yeah, recycled and no idea where it's going or where it's come from. Kate, when you look ahead, we've been so focused on the crypto lenders. What's another area that you think is starting to show cracks or will, whether that be the crypto miners or the stable coins? Yeah, it's interesting. That's crypto miners is big. One of the big areas that folks have been talking to. That's a big question. You say, what's the next shoe to drop? Where should we be looking? Crypto miners have come under a ton of focus and scrutiny lately, partially because of that lending. They are really capital intensive. They've needed to borrow a lot of money. And it's often been from those crypto companies, those crypto lenders that are now in that liquidity crunch. The capital is not there to borrow. Interest rates are a lot higher. Wall Street wants nothing to do with the crypto miners or crypto companies in general. So they really have been cut off from some of the credit that they've used in the past to grow. You've got lower Bitcoin prices, higher energy prices. So they're facing what some have told me is really a perfect storm. Those companies under pressure, I would watch that space for potentially more M&A and consolidation. Kate, good stuff. And by the way, if you're looking for more crypto content, tune into Crypto World for the latest news and market action. 3 p.m. Eastern time, cnbc.com slash crypto world. Hanging on close to session highs, Dow's up 240. Back in a moment. News on someone that we do cover a lot, but not the type of news we talk about a lot. Business Insider first reported yesterday that Elon Musk had twins last year with one of his top executives. BI cited a court filing in Texas that it had seen the executive works for Musk at Neuralink. That's his private brain neurotech company. Musk seemingly confirming the news this morning, tweeting, quote, doing my best to help the underpopulation crisis. That's not Musk. He had another child last year with the singer Grimes as well. John. Yeah, and this is a different company from SpaceX, where a flight attendant has uh, alleged that he propositioned her. So uh, Musk has a lot of companies that have a, a lot of human resources challenges. This does not appear to be a human resources challenge exactly. Well, one more thing, and that is tech security. A uh, very different note, the FBI and MI5 issuing a rare warning on Chinese espionage, especially when it comes to tech companies' intellectual property. FBI Director Christopher Wray saying, quote, the Chinese government is set on stealing your technology, whatever it is that makes your industry tick, and using it to undercut your business. One way to protect yourself, a new feature from Apple, the company announcing a new lockdown mode feature for iPhones to protect high-profile users like business executives and, well, maybe journalists, uh, protect them from state-sponsored hacking. Carl. Guys, very busy morning so far. Those oil inventories were a surprise. We're close to session highs, 38.90. Don't forget, Bullard speaks in an hour. Could be interesting, but more importantly, in front of that, the judge is back. Let's get to the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, 
packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 